Yeah, so um, it's a rainy day today. And uh, when I was uh, getting ready to uh, head over today, I uh, reached into my closet and pulled out a couple of umbrellas. And uh, one thing that I noticed, an observation that I made, was that um, I have like 10 of these umbrellas in my closet, and they're all these WeWork umbrellas. Um, you know, so that was interesting. I was like, wow, well, I've really gotten a lot of these. I've collected a lot of these over some time. And so I was walking to church, and I had a WeWork umbrella, and my son had a WeWork umbrella. And I saw Eugene and her family getting out of their car, and they had a lot of WeWork umbrellas too. And then I think there's one up there that might be Jess's. But, you know, there's this interesting relationship between our staff and um, their use of WeWork umbrellas specifically. And if you didn't know anything, if you didn't know any better, you might think that we love these WeWork umbrellas because we love WeWork so much. I mean, WeWork is fine, but you would think that we would purchase these umbrellas because we want to be associated with the WeWork brand, just like people buy uh, hats to their favorite sporting teams. You might think that there's a causation there, but there's not. It's not the reason. We, you would be wrong. Or you might think that we have all gone out and purchased these umbrellas because they're really good. Uh, they're, 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 they're very strong. They stand up well in the wind and, and all that stuff. And um, maybe they're just the best umbrellas. Uh, but again, you would be wrong. The real reason, the real cause of why our staff has so many of these WeWork umbrellas is because we're incredibly cheap. And every time it rains, our office gives out these free umbrellas and we just collect them over and over and over again. But if you think about it, there's this relationship there between the number of staff people who have these, uh, the number of staff people and the number of people who um, have these WeWork umbrellas. And most of you would say that just because uh, there seems to be some kind of association between these two sets of data. It doesn't actually mean anything. If you've ever taken a statistics class, you might, rece- you might recite the age-old mantra that correlation does not imply causality. Just because two things are correlated, just because there's an association between two things, it doesn't mean that they're connected in a causal way. We're going to talk about this idea of causality or cause and effects because it impacts so much of how we live our daily lives. Causality influences what you eat. In today's modern-day 24-hour news cycle, you're constantly bombarded with articles that tell you about a new superfood, that tell you eat more of this, eat more kale, or eat dark chocolate once a day, or drink a glass of red wine with your dinner because of the benefits that it will cause you to have in your life. You might live longer. You might have less likelihood to get a heart attack. But there's that idea that this will cause you to have some benefit in your life. Causality influences what you buy. A lot of us, we buy face creams or moisturizers and sunscreens because we think that it will cause us to have smoother skin or less wrinkles or to reduce our likelihood of having skin cancer. Causality influences so many of our major life decisions. If, if a lot of us were honest and you asked yourself, why did you choose to go to that school? Why did you choose to major in that? Why are you pursuing? It's because there's this underlying association in our minds that's embedded in us that tells us that the more experience, the more education you get, then the more money you'll make. So causality affects so many of the decisions that we make. But what about this? What happens when we misunderstand causation? You can waste your money. Do you guys know what airborne is? 
Airborne is this nutritional supplement, and it used to claim that it's an herbal health formula that boosts your immune system to help your body combat germs. And what they found out was that it was totally just made up. There's been no studies, there's no clinical proof. They actually got fined and they had to take that away from their packaging because there's no association between taking this medicine and actually boosting your immune system. But people still buy it. Misunderstanding causality can have negative effects on your health. Like we all hear about these measles outbreaks or these whooping cough outbreaks. These are things that we actually have vaccinations for. But there's this misunderstanding that's been disproved that says that there's, a, there's, there's, there's an association between getting vaccinated and greater risk for autism. And because people have this faulty association in their minds, that's why they don't get their kids vaccinated anymore. But if you even take a step further back, you can look at our society and misunderstanding causality can negatively affect us as a society. When President Trump spoke last week about the shootings in El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio, he said this, we must stop the glorification of violence in our society. This includes the gruesome and grisly video games that are now commonplace. And this is, in, this is despite the fact that there have been no studies that show any association, any correlation, any relationship between violent video games and shootings. So misunderstanding causality can, can lead us to focus on the wrong things. We'll start talking about video games and violent movies instead of guns and violence. Causation, the thing is, it can be a tricky thing to comprehend. And I'll ask the visual team to put up this comic that I thought was funny. And it reads this, one person says, I used to think correlation implied causation. Then I took a statistics class, now I don't. And the other person says, sounds like the class helped. And the original person says, well, maybe. As difficult as it is to understand causation, we can't give up. It's not impossible. To understand causation, there are three necessary and logical criteria to establishing causation. They're demonstrating association, direction of influence, of influence, and non-spuriousness. Okay, and we'll go through these really quick. Demonstrating association is basically demonstrating a correlation between two data points, two data sets. And it basically says this, if X, then Y, if not X, then not Y. If you observe that whenever X is present, Y is also present, and whenever X is absent, Y is too, then you have demonstrated that there is some kind of relationship between data set X and Y. Um, a, a regression analysis can demonstrate correlation, but it cannot prove cause by itself. After all, there are several ways in which two variables can be correlated. X can cause Y, Y can cause X, or it might be some other mystery factor that causes both X and Y. Okay, but the first step is you have to demonstrate an association. The second one is that you have to establish direction of influence. Okay, that means that cause must come before effect. It's like if you walked out today and again you saw the rain and you saw everybody wearing umbrellas and you wrote your congressman and you're like, we need to ban umbrellas because every time people bring out umbrellas it rains. You're not understanding the direction of influence. It's like the chicken and egg analogy. If there is a causal relationship, then determining what comes first is key. And the last of these three criteria is non-spuriousness. And in statistics, the spurious relationship is when a mathematical association 
it, sorry, it, uh, 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 a spurious relationship is a mathematical association in which two variables are associated but not casually related. The, cri the criteria for non-spuriousness then means an elimination of alternative explanations for the observed relationship between the two variables. It means that there's no other plausible explanation. Okay, the example of this is if you look at fires and the damage that is done by these fires. And you can see that the, and you look at these data sets, you see the number of firefighters, as it increases, the amount of damage the fire causes also increases. And then you can say, well, therefore, firefighters cause damage. But actually, what you're missing is that this, 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 this cause, this variable about the size of the fire, which causes more firefighters and greater damage. Okay, so that's non-spuriousness. And so if you guys are still with me, we'll get back into the passage. But how does this relate to today's passage? Okay, today's passage has been called one of the greatest summaries of the Christian faith. It's been called the core of what Titus was to teach, the great message. It's been called one of the richest passages of Holy Writ, one of the gems of the New Testament, and it says this, Paul's masterly epitome of Christian doctrine as the proper foundation for all scriptural demands. What that last quote suggests is that Paul is explaining that there is a causal relationship between what we know and how we live. And in this passage today, there's two causalities in motion that we're going to look at. Two if-thens at work. And they both have to do with what happens when something appears or when we see something. Okay, so our two points for today will be the appearance of God's grace is what causes us to live godly lives. And the second point is God's grace is what causes us to wait in blessed hope for the appearance of his glory. Okay, so again, the first point, the appearance of God's grace is what causes us to live godly lives. Lives. As we study this causal relationship between the appearance of God's grace and how it affects how we should live, we will go through those three criteria and glean some truth from it. So the first one is demonstrating association. Okay, you look at verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then verse 12 immediately says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live in self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Paul is saying this, that there is a direct relationship, association, correlation, whatever you want to call it. There's a direct relationship between understanding the grace of God and living a godly life. If X, then Y. If not X, then not Y. He doesn't say that there's a loose association. Paul doesn't say when the grace of God has appeared, bring salvation for all people, that sometimes it will train us to renounce ungodliness. He doesn't say that. Paul doesn't say that the grace of God might train us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. He says that it will. There's a certainty there. Not tomorrow, but today. Again, because he says, in the present age. And some of us live our lives rejecting this idea. We claim that we can somehow, our souls can be changed by grace, but that it doesn't necessarily need to result in any change in the way that we actually live out our lives. We want to believe that we can be saved by grace internally, but externally there would be nothing 
to differentiate you from any other people in this world. Paul rejects this notion. James rejects it as well. And I'll read from James 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things that they need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. It continues, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you not want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And sometimes James gets a bad rap because they're like, oh, he's the works guy. He's the works guy. But we're saying, no, 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 no. I want to show you my faith with works. He's not saying, I just want to show you my works. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying, these things, two things need to go together. There needs to be an integrity. There needs to be an authenticity between what we say we believe and how we actually live our lives. And this is another thing that we have to understand. The grace of God, it's free to you. It's true. But it's not cheap. The grace of God is free. It doesn't cost you anything, but it costs God everything. Let me put it this way. If it was your birthday and uh, I, I came and I gave you an envelope, not just any envelope, but one of those envelopes that screams, open me, I have money inside. And you open this envelope and you are all excited and you just opened it and you saw that I had just clipped a bunch of coupons for you. What would your reaction be? Would you be like, wow, great, I can save 50 cents on a box of cereal. Thanks, Brian. You would think this cost him nothing. This gift cost him nothing. And you'd be right to think that I'm a very cheap friend. But if on your birthday I gave you something that cost me a lot of money, like, you know, I don't know, nice tickets to the Cubs or, or a reservation to Alinea, you would look at that gift and you'd say, wow, that cost Brian a lot of money. He must really value me. He must really care about me. In a completely platonic way, he must love me. Both are, both are gifts. Both don't cost you anything. Both are free to you, but one gift is cheap and the other is costly. It makes all the difference in the world. My son Isaiah, he's uh, six. He's going to turn seven in a couple weeks. And he's at that stage where he's constantly bombarding me with questions. And it's super annoying. Just question after question after question. He's really into Star Wars. He's too scared to actually watch the movies. But he's got these encyclopedias about Star Wars stuff, and he just reads them over and over again. And he's constantly asking me all these questions, like, what's the difference between an ATAT and ATST? I'm like, I do not know. I told him, look, you can ask me Star Wars questions about Darth Vader, Luke Skywalker, and that's it. Because all this other stuff, I do not know. But that's just, the, that's just the, like, the stage of life that he's in. He's asking me question after question. And um, you know, a couple weeks ago, I don't know if they were going over in children's ministry, but he came up to me and asked me this, what does it mean to sacrifice? What does it mean to sacrifice? I said, um, I think I explained it like this. I think I said, um, um, it means that you give up something that you really want so that somebody else can have what they really want. I think I explained it in terms of ice cream. If there was like one last scoop of Jenny's ice cream 
and I wanted it, and you wanted it, and I let you have it, that's a sacrifice. But it has to have value to me. If I had no interest in that ice cream, if my stomach hurt and I let you have it, then that's not really a sacrifice. It has to cost me something. He asked me, he made to me later, and he asked me if sometimes people would sacrifice their lives for another person. Is it just ice cream? Or is there something more? And I told him that, yes, that happens, and that's the ultimate sacrifice. Later that evening, he came to me, a little philosopher he is. He asked me, what if I had to give up my life to save other people? What should I do? I told him immediately, without even thinking about it, that I would never let him do that. I didn't ask him for the details in his little, like, hypothetical situation. Who are the people? What's the circumstances? I didn't care. Because as his father, I was like, I would not sacrifice you for anybody. I would never give him up. The answer would always be no. But that's exactly what God did for us when he sent his son Jesus to the cross. Jesus didn't pay the price for your sins with a credit card. He didn't put it on layaway. He paid the price for your sins with blood on a cross. God's gift of grace to you is free. It's true. It costs you nothing. But God's grace, gift of grace to you is extremely costly because it cost him everything. It cost him his son. And, you, and we cheapen this gift of grace when we live a life that is indistinguishable from anybody else. You cheapen it when it doesn't change your life, when it doesn't impact you, when it doesn't set you apart. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, like in the book, The Cost of Discipleship, he goes behind between these two concepts of costly grace and, cheaply, and cheap grace. And this is what he says. Cheap grace is the teaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. If we are truly impacted by grace, if we truly experience in the grace of God, then our lives need to be impacted by grace as well. So these are questions for you to ask yourself. Is grace to you just about making you feel better about yourself? Is it just about making you feel accepted? Or is it training you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions? Is grace training us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives? Because those are questions that we have to ask because these two things work step in step together. I want to say a few things about how grace trains us to live godly lives. Training, in other uh, translations... They use the word teaches or disciplines. And the word actually is suitable for the way a parent teaches or disciplines a child. So I want us to think less about like a drill sergeant training a cadet, but more about the way that a child, a parent discipline and teaches their child. There's a firmness to this training, but there's also a love and tenderness as well. And also, training implies time. It implies time. Do you have to be an expert at renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions today? Do you have to be perfectly self-controlled and upright and godly at this exact moment? 
Training implies time, and that means you don't have to be a finished work right now, but this training yet still has to be happening. If you aren't perfectly put together today, if you don't have it all together right now, that's not a surprise. But over time, if there's no difference in your life, then I think there's some soul searching you really have to do. And practically speaking, I'm bringing this back super practical to our church, I think one of the best ways to do this in our church is to join a community group. Over the next month, we're going to be going through training with our community group leaders. I ask you guys as a church, pray for that. Pray for that, that we'd be equipping and that we'd be training them, that the grace would be training them even during this time as they prepare for this community group season. But the thing about being in a community group, being in relationship with other Christians, is that it's the best place to be with people who can actually see if the grace of God is that you profess is actually impacting your life in any way. Is grace training you in godliness? by joining a community group and being in communion with other believers, I think it's one of the best ways to answer that question for ourselves. The next thing that we have to kind of talk about is, is, is determining uh, the direction of influence. What causes what? Grace and godly living. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll remember that what precedes today's passage is Paul's instructions to Titus on how to respond to these false teachers who have negatively influenced the churches on this island of Crete. These false teachers are going around and they're teaching lies. And what's, the, what the, the, what the, what's coming up from these lies is that people are living these kind of lives that don't reflect the gospel of Christ, don't show that they're a follower of Christ. There's no integrity or authenticity to their faith. And so, in response to that, Paul launches this detailed description of what it should look like to live a life that's been affected by grace. And last week, David Otua preached from this passage where Paul specifically talks to five groups of people. Older men mentoring younger women, older women mentoring younger women and bond servants. And what Paul tells him, and this is right before today's passage, he tells him that you should be self-controlled, sober-minded. Generally speaking, you need to conduct yourself in a manner that's worthy of Jesus Christ. And he wraps up that passage by saying that, 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 that you do this so that in everything that, that we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And he's saying you should live these holy and godly lives so that the message about Jesus would become attractive to non-believers, so that the world would look at your life and see something that their lives are lacking and it would create this hunger and thirsting for what we have or at minimum a curiosity as to what makes us live a life that's so unlike anything else in this world. That's how we witness it's important we don't live this godly, transformed life in order to earn spiritual brownie points or to have a better chance to get into heaven. We live these radically different Christian lives so that other people will sit up and they will notice that in a really good way, we're different, and hopefully they'll ask us questions that will allow us to tell them about Christ. Our lives should be so different, so out of the ordinary that people will ask of what would possibly cause us to live this way. In today's passage, that's what Paul explains. When Paul says, for, 
before the grace of God has appeared. What he's saying is that, what, that when, when he says for, what he's saying, what I'm about to talk about is why you should live in this holy way. Why you should live a transformed life, a Christ-like life. Titus 2, 11 to 14 answers the question why Christians ought to obey and how they should obey the exhortations in Titus 2, 1 through 10. And again, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. It's grace. That's the cause that comes before the effect. Grace appears first, and that causes us to live these godly lives. It's grace that causes us to change. And most of us, if we're honest, we've become way too familiar and comfortable with the concept of God's grace. We've grown too comfortable with the idea of the unmerited favor of God. We've gotten too used to the idea that God showed favor and blessing on those who did not in any way deserve it. In fact, we deserved his judgment and his wrath. We were his enemies, but instead of wrath and judgment, he showed us favor. That's a radical idea. Um, this is kind of a surprise for Isaiah, so don't tell him if you see him, but tomorrow I'm actually going to surprise him and take him on a little vacation, just me and him. He's got a couple weeks off before school starts. Um, we didn't have daycare set up, so I took a week off work, and we're going to go, and we're going to go to the beach. It's a big surprise. It's going to be pretty awesome. Uh, but this is the thing. <clears throat> I'm a really sinful person. So uh, he knows I took the week off, but he doesn't know where we're going or what we're doing. And I've been using it. I've been holding it over his head for the last week. So every time he does something bad, I'm like, you're getting negative points. If you get negative points, you're just going to come with me to the office every day, and you're just going to do workbooks. And then every time he does something good, or I want him to do something good, I'm like, hey, you could win positive points, and that'll mean we go somewhere better. It's a really messed up thing, and it's really not a good uh, teaching of the gospel. But this is what I hope to tell him tomorrow. Maybe I should apologize for holding this over his head for so long. But assuming that I haven't emotionally scarred him and ruined this trip, what I want to tell him tomorrow is that we're going to go to the beach for a few days, just me and him, and it's going to be a great time. And I hope he'll accept my apology for holding it over his head. But I want to tell him this. I didn't book this trip today. In fact, I booked this trip a while ago. I decided, regardless if he was bad or good, that we were going to go on this trip and we were going to enjoy this time together. And I'm cheap, so I was never going to eat the cancellation fees. It's never like, oh, you were bad, so I canceled this trip. No, we were going to go, regardless of his behavior or his performance. I want him to know that he's ultimately going on this trip not because he was good, but because he's mine. Grace isn't a favor you can isn't favor you can achieve by being good. It's the gift you receive by being God's. Grace is God's goodness that comes looking for you when you had shown no signs that you were ever looking for him. Grace is a farmer paying a full day's wages to a bunch of lazy day laborers who only worked a single hour punched on their time cards. Grace is a man marrying an abandoned woman and then refusing to forsake his covenant with her when she turns out to be a whore. Grace is the insanity of a shepherd who puts 99 sheep at risk to rescue the single lamb that was too dumb to stick with the rest of the flock. Grace is the love of a father who hands over his finest rings and his nicest robe to a son who turned his back on him 
and squandered his inheritance with his fake friends. Grace is the one-way love letter that brings you into the family of God, not because of what you've done or because you're good, but because God has chosen to make you his own. And grace is God chasing you to the ends of the earth to keep you as his child, and nothing in heaven and hell can ever stop him. That is the grace of God. Grace comes before godly living. Grace is the cause. Godly living is the effect. But throughout history, Christians have feared that if they just teach salvation by grace alone, it would lead people to live a carefree, irresponsible, godless life. So they added other things like works to grace. The insinuation that grace alone is not enough leads to teachings that we're saved by grace and works or faith and works or faith and faithfulness or faith and bearing fruit or faith and fill in the blank. But this muddles the causal relationship that Paul says is meant to exist between experiencing grace and living a godly life. Paul clearly states in Titus 2 as well as Ephesians 2 that grace is the cause and godly living is the effect. Ephesians 2 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so no man can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It is the gift of God, not the results of works, so that no one can boast. You see the conflict that he's addressing there. Because if you're like me, your tendency is to just boast in yourself, your own works, your performance. And that's why accepting gifts can be so difficult for us. For the last two weeks, I signed Isaiah up for a theater camp. I have no idea why I signed him up for a theater camp. And this theater camp was in the West Loop. I don't work in the West Loop. I don't live in the West Loop. It was a big headache getting him to and from that camp every day. So I reached out to another parent that I knew, and what did I say? I said, hey, let's, let's carpool this. 50-50. You pick a way, and I'll pick the other way. We'll switch out days, whatever. Let's do this together. And this is what she said to me. I already worked out another carpool. I was like, dang it. But she's like, there's room in our cars, and we can take Isaiah to and from every day. And you know what I said to that? You think I said thank you? I didn't say thank you. I said, please let me contribute. Please let me get into the rotation. Because it was just so hard for me to receive an actual gift of grace. That I wanted to do my part. That I wanted to earn my keep. I'd feel more comfortable if I was paying my share. But instead I just had to be thankful and receive this gift. Even in our relationship with God, even those who recognize that we are in utter need of God's grace for our salvation, there's still this thing inside of us that begs, can I do my part, please? We want to pay our share. We want to boast in our performance and our righteousness rather than just receive this gift of God's grace. But the problem is you can't work out your salvation on your own. God's godly living that is not a worshipful response to God is not true godly living. Think back to Ephesians 2.10. It says, For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. And what Paul is saying is we are not saved by good works, 
but actually for good works. Paul, to Paul, works is the evidence of grace, not the means of grace. No one gets grace by working more, yet when grace is working in us, good works abound. And again, grace is the cause and godly living is the effect. You have to get that straight. So what does it mean for this church? It means that from this pulpit, week in and week out, we will continue to preach the gospel of grace. Because that's the cause and godly living is the effect. And believe me, I've heard the feedback. Some people are like, hey, you, only, you, guys, you guys only preach grace and you guys never make that association with godly living. And if that's true, I apologize for that. Because what today's passage makes clear is that there's this direct association or correlation between the two. But we know what causes what. And from the pulpit, week in and week out, we will continue to preach the gospel of grace because that is the cause. And that will be what will cause us to live more godly lives. We'll continue to preach the gospel week in and week out at this church. And then the last of the determining factors is this, non-spuriousness. Non-spuriousness. And I think you see it in that idea of bringing salvation for all people in the passage. Bringing salvation. It's brought to you. It was done for you. You were served your salvation. And then that idea for all people. He's not saying that everyone is saved by this, from this gospel of grace. That's not what it means. But what it means is that there's only one way for salvation for all people. It is a salvation through grace. It is the gospel. It is the only way that we are going to be made right with God. And I want to back up and I want to bring up the fact that Paul writes that the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. That word appeared is the Greek word that we get our modern word epiphany from, which means to suddenly appear. Other translations, they use the word uh, manifestation. But our idea of epiphany now, is, it's, it's this idea that someone has this light bulb moment and suddenly they understand something or something happens in your life and suddenly you can see things in a different way. But in the Bible, an epiphany was used in the Old Testament to describe the appearance of God. And in the New Testament, in today's passage, it means to describe the appearance of Jesus. <clears throat> Excuse me. Paul uses it later in Titus chapter 3 when he says this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So when Paul here says that the grace of God appeared, everyone knows that he's referring to a specific appearance by a specific person by the name of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. Jesus' appearance, when Paul's talking about, isn't just an idea or philosophy or a way of thinking of things, but it's something that actually happened in space and time. But think about that. Do you really believe that? I think a lot of you would answer yes. But do you actually believe that about Jesus? 
I think a lot of times, even a church like ours, we can talk about the gospel and we can talk about gospel themes. We can talk about how God loves us, so I should love other people. God accepts me, so I should be more accepting of other people. But what Paul is referencing here is not a code of conduct to live by. He's not pointing to, but he's pointing to a physical person during a historical time. He's not talking about a symbol or a representation or a teaching. He's talking about a person. And so I want to ask you, church, has Jesus appeared to you? Has he manifested himself to you? Is Jesus Christ as real to you in your life as the person who's sitting in the chair next to you? If you cannot answer those questions, or it's been a long time since you could, then the likelihood is that you haven't had your epiphany, eye-opening moment. And if you haven't had that epiphany moment with Jesus, if he hasn't appeared to you, if you aren't convinced he's as real as this stage or this building that we're in, then the chances are that you haven't eliminated all the other plausible explanations for why your faith is the way that it is. If Jesus has yet to appear to you, if he isn't real to you, then there will always be the part of you that wonders, is my faith caused by some other variable? Is there some other factor that can explain why I go to church and why I read my Bible other than Jesus? You might sit to yourself and say, well, maybe I'm a Christian because that's the way my parents raised me. You might sit there and think, well, I'm a Christian because this feels right in this stage of life, in this season that I'm going through, this idea of the gospel makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Maybe this gospel, though, isn't the one that's going to bring me my ultimate salvation. Maybe this gospel is not really the gospel for all the people, and that's why you don't share it. Maybe this gospel isn't even really for me. And this is why the appearance, the manifestation, that epiphany moment, that eye-opening understanding and recognition of a real Jesus, not just a way of thinking of a life philosophy, but an actual real Savior, that's why it's of such vital importance to Paul. Understanding the gospel is important. Being able to write an essay explaining the gospel, that's a great skill. But have you seen Jesus? Has he appeared to you? If the answer is, I'm not sure, or maybe even no, then I think I have good news for you. Because for me, one of the ways that Jesus appears to me is through the reading of God's word. And again, personally, and this is just a personal thing, one of the ways that Jesus appears most to me in God's word is to read the gospel accounts of him. And when we finish this sermon series on Titus, we're going to go into a a lengthy sermon series through one of those four gospel accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. I think we're leaning towards Mark, but it'll be one of the four. Also, for our community groups this year, we're going to engage in Bible studies over the same passages. And what that means is we're going to spend extended time as a church from the preaching of God's word and through personal Bible study uh, with with your small groups, 
studying the life of Jesus, his ministry, his teachings, how he interacted with people. And I think if we pray and we lean into God and we search for him in the scriptures, and what, we'll feel, what we'll find is that Jesus will, will reveal himself to us, that he'll appear and he'll be more real to us individually and as a church. Lastly, God's grace is what causes us to wait in blessed hope for the appearance of his glory. I think you see it in the last two verses from today's passages. Paul writes, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own position who are zealous for good works. The appearance, of, again, that word appearance, the appearance of God's glory enables us to what? Wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of our of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The fact that Christ appeared 2,000 years ago, that the world word became flesh, that he went to the cross, that should cause a change in you and in the way that you live your life. But also the fact that Christ will return in glory, that should cause a change in your life as well. What does it mean to wait in blessed hope? Otua kind of teased me last week when in his sermon, so I'll kind of tease him back. But we were out at lunch about a week and a half ago, and uh, Otua is a, bear, uh, is a Chicago sports team fan, and I'm a Boston sports team fan. So I like to tease him a lot about it because my teams are very successful and his teams are failures. So I, 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 I pose this hypothetical to him. I don't know why. I don't know why I do this, but I just say, hey, um, if... If, if you could have a young Tom Brady on, your, on, on the Bears right now, like 20-year-old Tom Brady, I mean, Ray will argue, but pretty much you can't argue he's the greatest quarterback of all time. So you can have a young Tom Brady on the Bears right now, and all you know is for the next 20 years, you'll be the Super Bowl favorites basically every year. You'll win five, six Super Bowls. It'll be great. What would you sacrifice for that? What would you give up? Your Bears teams have, probably have the worst history of quarterbacks of all, all the teams. What would you do? What would you give up? What would you sacrifice to have the greatest? And it was surprising. He wouldn't give up that much. I was like, would you give up watching all other sports? No. Would you give up this? Would you give up that? No. And I was like, why would you be so reluctant to give anything up? He's like, because I'm okay just hoping year to year with these Bears teams. And I told him, you know, I, I'm almost 40 years now, oh, 40 years old now. I told him, look, I, I know what it's like to feel that way, to just to buy into hope. For the first 20 years of my life, Boston sports teams basically won nothing. They won a couple NBA championships in the early 80s, but I was too young. But really from like my adolescence to my early adulthood, we won nothing. We were a mockery. We always got destroyed by other teams. We tried and we failed. It was awful. But I was like, I always hope, I hope, I hope, I hope for the next year. But then in 2000, when I turned 20, everything changed. In the last 20 years, Boston professional sports team have won 12 championships. It's awesome. Six by the Patriots, four by the Red Sox, one each by the Celtics and the Bruins. And this is what I turn to Otua. I know what it's like to just hope, but do you know what's better than hope? Joy. Victory. 
That's better than hope. And the word hope, when Paul's using it in today's passage, he's not trying to communicate this wishful uncertainty as in, I just hope or I wish something would occur. Rather, he says it's a blessed hope. It's this glad assurance that something will take place. This blessed hope then is the joyful assurance that Jesus Christ will return. And we're waiting for that event now. This blessed hope is of a new heaven and an earth to come. The hope that is promised in Corinthians when Paul writes this, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So how do we Christians express our hope? How do we wait for this glorious and blessed hope? In the parable of the ten virgins, there's five foolish virgins and there's five wise virgins. And what sets them apart? The foolish ones are unprepared for the bridegroom's return while the wise ones are prepared and waiting for the unannounced return at any time without warning. And what this passage, even today's passage, tells us is that the appearance of God's glory, the return of Jesus Christ, should cause the believer to live a godly life in an ungodly world. You see in the last verse, zealous for good works, waiting for the return of Christ, the appearing of Christ in the second coming, should affect the way that you live. But instead of just focusing again on the causal relationship of what God has done or what he will do and how that should affect our lives, I want to end by touching on the causal relationship when it comes to God and why does he do all of this? What causes God to send Jesus to the cross, the first appearance, and go through the trouble of sending him again, that second appearance in these verses we're talking about now? I think that verse in 1 Corinthians is also at work in this passage. That when Christ returns, we shall know fully, even as we are fully known. Right? We shall know fully, even as we are fully known. And in today's passage, God's stated purpose for appearing again is to possess a purified people for himself. God's desire is to have us, God's desire to have us is so strong, it's stated twice. A people for himself that are his own possession. This is good news. There's a blessed and joyful day coming when we are made fully purified and when God's desire for us is made complete. And so for us as a church, what it means to live in this blessed hope, waiting in this blessed hope, means that when the world is dark, that we can muster hope and faith and belief that we are not left striving to simply emulate a Christ that left us long ago. We are not only people walking a path towards a God and towards godliness, but God is walking a path back towards us and he will appear again to achieve his destination. Oh, the glory of that day, as the hymn reads, 
high king of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joy, O bright heaven's sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. May Christ be our vision in the grace that has brought us salvation on the cross and the glory of his second coming that is to come. And may it impact our church, us as individuals and the community around us. Let us pray.